happening out there as we talked about God reigning, right? When you enter the sanctuary of God, that's when the rest of the world makes sense and it goes away. So if you come in today and you've got cares and concerns, bitterness, anger, whatever that is, whatever your petty things are, it's time to put those aside. Today, the focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we want and that's what we do. So we're going to actually open with Psalm 104. It actually fits very well with the song that the worship team just picked, Psalm 104, verses 24 through 35. We're not going to read the whole thing. It's a bit long, so I'll just tell you, this is a praise psalm. It's a praise psalm pointing to God as the creator of everything, the earth and everything in it, right? And this is what gives the ultimate meaning to life. That's why the attack on creation, right? This is what gives meaning. It is pointing to God as the majestic God who creates us, who creates everything, and we're here to worship him. Let's read Psalm 104, beginning in verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Blessed, blessed be the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Well, those of you with us last week know that we started, or we did the intro to get ready to start the book of Acts, which we will start in earnest today with chapter 1, verse 1. Now, we spent some time last week on some key themes, and we won't reiterate those today, but we'll just point to the fact that we know that when we pick up the book of Acts, we actually are picking up part two of a two-part work that begins with the gospel of Luke. And so now Acts, and I guess I would pause there and say for those of you who, who are in Bible reading plans or are looking to read another, that's a good place to go, right? Since we're in Acts, pour through Luke. See kind of what the precursor is to Acts. Because Acts is now going to detail the work of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ through his people, through each one of you, and through his church by the work of the Holy Spirit whom he has sent. Now, when we look at Acts... We know that Acts is theological, it points to God for sure, but it is primarily historical. It points to the first 30 years of the establishment of the church. And it is history that actually makes Christianity unique. 
Because Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not a set of moralistic teachings. It's not a set of inspirational quotes or wisdom sayings. All of those things change with cultures and with time, and God doesn't change. Christianity is also unique because unlike other religions and other cults, it doesn't rest on the mighty deeds of a man or woman or group of them. It rests on the central character of God and God the Son in particular. It rests on God who created the heavens and the earth and everything upon the earth. And the Bible then tells the story, and Acts continues this, of God's unfolding in redemptive history, right? He is working out his plan to reach down into the mass of fallen humanity and by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, make them a new creation and then bring them together into a new family, Christ's church, and then continuing to work in all of our lives by the Holy Spirit to bring glory to Jesus. See, without history, Christianity would actually vanish. It actually wouldn't exist anymore because it is inseparably linked to the person and work of Jesus Christ, God the Son in the flesh. And when you go back through the Gospels, you see that Jesus taught a lot, but he also lived and he acted and he showed us what God is truly like. Right? Because he was perfect in every way. And he did all of this in order that we might be saved so that he was perfect and went to the cross and he bore the wrath of God in our place. And then he rose from the grave victorious and ascended into heaven. And we know and we trust that he will return to judge the living and the dead. And without those historical facts, there's actually no reason for being here this morning. Ben Witherington is a New Testament scholar and he was commenting this week on a documentary that's coming out Next week, and he's had this to say. He said, the Bible is far more than an inspirational book. Your religion is not chicken soup for the soul. It has a historical foundation. And without that, you don't have Christianity. The Bible is not a Ouija board for gurus to find a spiritual message for the day. It is a text that focuses on history, theology, and ethics. And it tells the truth about history, theology, and ethics. And because of that, history matters. We are people of a historical religion. And what I don't want you to miss as we begin through Acts is that as followers of Jesus Christ today, we are part of that continued history, right? We're part of the continuation of God's unfolding plan to take the gospel out, to reach all people, to bring the spiritually dead to life by faith in Jesus Christ. And the fact that Jesus will return, and we don't know when, should give us a sense of urgency, should give us a real sense of urgency in living for Christ, in worshiping him, in loving one another, being set apart from the world, and most of all, in reaching the lost. Because we are told in Scripture, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right? Second Peter. And how does God do that? How does he realize this plan? Through you, through me, through the church. He could do it any way he wants, but he chose to do it through us. Well, let's turn to the first 11 verses of the book of Acts and see how this begins. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. 
after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are always eternally grateful for your word. You could have been a God who acted. But we would not know you had you chosen not to speak, to reveal yourself, to instruct us. And we pray that by your spirit, our hearts would be opened this morning to hearing of the glory of Jesus Christ, that you would draw us closer to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the introduction to the book of Acts, and there are two major themes going on here. You can look at it this way. Verses 1 through 5, Christians there are given assurance. Christians are given assurance. The real bodily resurrection of Jesus and the fulfillment of the promise to send the Holy Spirit demonstrate for us that God's redemptive work continues. His plan of salvation continues to move forward through his church. Then in verses 6 through 11, you see a second theme. Christians are reminded that we are called to action. The church is missional by nature and is called to reach the world with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, calling every man, woman, and child to turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus because his return is guaranteed. Now, because we did a lot of the introduction last week, we're going to dive right in with four headings. You have them in your bulletins or your outlines. The first is a a new beginning on a historical foundation. The second is the gift of the ages, then clarity of purpose, and then the motivation for mission. So a new beginning based on history. We know this, the four gospel accounts detail the person and work of Jesus Christ so that we can know him. And three of those four gospels end with the resurrection. Only Luke documents the ascension of Jesus Christ. But in Acts, the first three verses make clear that that's not the end of the story. It's just a new beginning. We're embarking on a new beginning that grounds itself in historical fact. The introduction tells us we see the initial recipient of Luke's work was Theophilus. People love to debate this and they love to write about it. It was an extremely common Greek name at the time. We don't know who he is. We have no idea who he is. Luke 1, chapter 3, calls him most excellent Theophilus. So there's an assumption that he was part of the upper class. He may have been part of the ruling class. It's the same title that's given to Governor Felix and some others later in Acts. It doesn't matter, though. 
The, the key point when you see this is that the purpose in writing Luke and Acts is stated for us. It is to give, this is Luke 1.4, it is to give certainty concerning the things you have been taught. To give certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So the only thing we really know about Theophilus is he was a real man and he knew something of the Christian message. He knew uh, that the growth in the church, or at that time just the way the followers of Jesus was growing. Whether or not he was a believer, we don't know. He may have been a God-fearer like Cornelius that we'll run into in Acts chapter 10. But Luke's goal is to give him more accurate information than he already has. And so this is the assurance, the certainty that's provided in the gospel of Luke, and it's now going to be extended in the book of Acts, which begins, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And that's the anchoring point, Jesus doing and teaching. If you go back through the Gospels sometime for fun, you will see that the two always go hand in hand. Luke chapter 4, for example, says Jesus was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. But then it goes on from that point and tells us right then and there, there was a demon-possessed man. Jesus cast out the demon The crowd was amazed, it validated his teaching, and word spread throughout the surrounding region, not just of his miracle, but his teaching, both. They always go hand in hand. All that Jesus began to do and teach, but that is the important part. That's what you center in on as you go into Acts. The gospel account told all that Jesus began to do and teach. That gives us our big clue in this second volume of Christian history You're now going to see what the risen and ascended Jesus continues to do and teach now through the Holy Spirit. And so Luke continues. Luke had documented the teaching and deeds of Christ in his gospel. He says, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Again, the choice of words here is significant. Luke could have written that the gospel ended when Jesus ascended into heaven, but he doesn't write that. He writes, until the day when he was taken up. And that language parallels Old Testament passages where God acts to take up righteous men to heaven. 2 Kings 2 is a good example of that. It says, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven. And you later read there that God did exactly that. This is important. Because the ascension of Christ is a demonstration of divine favor by the Father. It it is actually as central to Christianity as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which we mention frequently, because it stands as the act that vindicates Jesus and places him at the right hand of God the Father, where he's interceding for us daily. It points to the truth of Psalm 110, which is going to be quoted in Peter's first sermons. Which says, the Lord, Yahweh, the Father, said to my Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is very important to understand. Jesus Christ, vindicated by the Father, at the Father's right hand. Now the text tells us he didn't leave without giving commands through the Holy Spirit to his sovereignly chosen apostles. He chose the apostles. Luke 6 tells how that story begins in verses 12 and 13. It says, In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples. There were many, and he chose from them 12, whom he had named apostles. So Jesus chose them very specifically for this mission. 
And the commands being referred to here are twofold. Again, this is all pointing us back to Luke. First, he has commanded the mission. He has given them the mission, Luke 24, 47. It's very similar. It's a parallel to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. They're just different ways of saying the same thing. Luke 24 says, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Christ's name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And we'll see that that actually happens. It's kind of interesting. You'll also see in Acts that it's safe to say the apostles really didn't realize this. They didn't understand the breadth of this command. They were still thinking to themselves that the saving gospel of Jesus is for us. It's for Israel. We keep it like within the four walls here and save it. We're going to be saved and vindicated. And they're soon going to learn the expansiveness of this command and the hope that is to be taken to all people. Now, commands is plural. There was a second command, and you see that in Luke chapter 24, 49, where Jesus said, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. So the apostles, and then by extension, really all followers of Jesus, were given a mission that is commanded by Jesus through the Spirit, and at the same time will be empowered by the Spirit to fulfill that mission. Now, that command is going to get reiterated in the next couple verses, so we'll focus on that there. But before we get there, there's one more piece of history that Luke presents to us. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, you remember, I'm sure from last week, nobody, absolutely nobody expected the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When he was taken off that cross and buried, he was dead. And in fact, when the women found the empty tomb and ran back to tell the disciples that Jesus was raised, we read Luke 24, 11. It says it seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe. So that's their starting point. But Luke here is telling an amazing truth. The appearances of Jesus over and over during this 40-day period after his resurrection provided convincing proof to the apostles and all the disciples of Jesus that he was bodily resurrected. He was alive. He was continuing to instruct about the kingdom of God, right? God's activity in the world, God's sovereignty. Now, if you take a step back, and here's what Luke is really saying in these first three opening verses. He's saying in the next 28 chapters, they didn't have chapters, but... We do. The next 28 chapters are going to lay out for you, Theophilus, the establishment of the church, how Christianity spread, how Christ worked through his people. But I want you to know it is based on historical fact and including the miracle of the resurrection. So here's how you'd lay the argument out logically. The resurrection is a fact. Jesus appeared to the women, he appeared to the apostles, he ate with them, Thomas touched him and cried out, my Lord, my God. Paul would write later in 1 Corinthians that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. One of the most fascinating statements in any letter to me, because it is essentially saying, you don't believe it, go ask them. They're still alive. They saw the risen Jesus. It's a fact. And since Jesus was raised from the grave, then it proves his deity. Everybody knows he's a man. He died on the cross. But three times, the Gospel of Luke records for us, as do the other Gospels, that Jesus had told the disciples he would be killed, and after three days, he would be raised by God. Now, that was either a true statement, and he was God the Son in the flesh, or it was an absolutely bold lie and complete blasphemy. 
and he was raised. So it points to his deity. And since Jesus is God the Son, he must speak truth. For it is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6.18 And since everything the Son of God says must be true, then we can trust everything Jesus teaches. And that means we can and we must trust every word of the Bible because Jesus taught that it was the very word of God. And that's kind of where it sat. Every activity of the apostles from that point on in the early church was grounded in the person and work, the teaching, the activity of a real historical Jesus who is truly God, truly man, who went to the cross, who died, who rose again, and ascended into heaven. I'll give you a little side note here for those of you who get involved in these kinds of discussions. If you ever get asked, where in the Bible does it talk about the Trinity? The triune nature of God, right? Three persons, one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each distinct but one God. And I will tell you, there's many places, but you see that right here in the introduction to Acts. Jesus, the eternal Son, is the focus. He was taken up. It's a divine passive. It points to the Father. He spoke of the kingdom of God, again pointing to the Father. You see Father then mentioned later in the text. And verses 2 and 5 make explicit mention of God the Holy Spirit, All distinct persons, all different roles, all one God. And you will see the Trinity in the retelling of the commands and promises of Jesus as he emphasizes the gift of the ages. Our next heading, verses 4 and 5. And while staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, that's obviously, we're going to hit Holy Spirit all throughout Acts. We're going to flesh this out more when we get to Acts chapter 2 and the events of Pentecost. But you have to notice a couple of things here to understand what Luke is telling us. The baptism of John the Baptist that is referenced here and Christian baptism are not the same thing. That's something we'll run into in Acts chapter 19. But we have to recognize they are not the same thing. In Luke chapter 3... John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and his audience was Jews who were awaiting a Messiah. So the way they would have understood this was as a ritual baptism, a ritual preparatory washing to get ready for the Messiah who was to come. And then John points them forward. How will you know that the Messiah, the Christ, has actually come? So he's foretelling the sign. That through the gift of the Holy Spirit, a new era of God's redemptive history would begin. In essence, he's saying that the proof that God has sent his Christ to save all truly repentant sinners who will place their faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus is going to be this outpouring of the Spirit. Now, baptism of Christ's followers today points to what's already taken place, a past action. Titus 3 uh, describes it this way. God our Savior saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. You cannot work your way into God's favor. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. It looks backwards. Today, there is no later baptism. We'll cover this later. Acts is not always normative. It's documenting history. 
for us in the unfolding of God's plan. Nowhere in scripture are we told to pray for this uh, baptism of the spirit or to hope for it. All believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit at conversion. Romans 5 says God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 1 Corinthians 12, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. And all were made to make to drink of one spirit. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit does not belong to him. This is a matter of conversion. And we'll go over that a lot more as we get to Acts chapter 2. But it's important to note here. Because Luke's not necessarily drawing us to this. What he's drawing us to is the fulfillment of God's promise that was foretold in the Old Testament. And it's the inauguration, the beginning of this last era of redemptive work that we live in. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. He said, I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. In Joel, which Peter will quote, he says that it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour my spirit on all flesh. And of course, Ezekiel 36, which we looked at last week, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Jesus told the apostles in the text that they'd heard this from him before. And they did many times. John 14, 16 is one example. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. That's the fulfillment. In Luke, he points forward to this when he tells them to wait, and he refers to that as being clothed with the power from on high. They need to wait. Why? Why tell them to wait? It's only 10 days, by the way, but why tell them to wait? Well, the reality is that the apostles may have felt pretty bold at this time. They've been with Jesus, appearing and reappearing for 40 days, being taught by him, something that we can only imagine. They might be charged up and ready to go. I can go do this. I can do it on my own. But no amount of study, no amount of knowledge, no amount of enthusiasm will produce a fruitful gospel ministry without the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the message. Effective ministry requires both God's direction from his word and the enabling power of the Holy Spirit who works primarily through scripture and always, always, always points to the glory of Jesus Christ. And that is why we always pray, I hope you always pray, that the Spirit will open the ears and the eyes of those that were around and open their heart and give us boldness to speak truth to this perishing world. Now you can summarize this first five verses this way. You can say that Luke has really tied Acts back to the teaching and deeds of Jesus in the Gospels and he's pointed forward now to what will come. He's told us that the death and resurrection of Jesus is not the end of the story. And so, in fact, something new for this age of God's redemptive history is coming. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit, but they must wait. And that, of course, raises questions in their minds, just as it would ours. So the apostles needed clarity. Jesus is going to give them clarity of purpose. 
Verse six says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, sometimes we look at that question and we bristle. We think it looks really bad on the apostles' part. Like, why'd they ask this? It's not as bad as it looks. It's really not. God, remember, revealed his redemptive plan progressively through Scripture. He didn't give all the answers in Genesis. It took all the way through to Revelation as God continued to act. So Judaism, which these men grew up in, would have taught that the Messiah, the Christ, was coming. And that God would pour out his spirit, right? We saw that in Ezekiel and Isaiah, Joel. He would pour out his spirit, and at that time, the new heavens and new earth would begin all at once. All at once. They weren't expecting that this would be split into two parts with a spirit-empowered mission for God's people right in between. And really, the problem that the disciples had, why they were so dense to this reality, is they were never thinking in terms of mission. And that had actually been a problem right from the start, going all the way back to Genesis 12, where God forms a people, and he calls Israelites, and he calls them to go and be a blessing to all nations. And we know that throughout the Old Testament, they don't, right? They never are able to fulfill that. And what the apostles now are focused on is a vindication of Israel, which now sat under the rule of the pagan Roman Empire, which they hated, In many respects, what they were wanting was a political solution to what they perceived as a national problem. They didn't recognize that the problem was spiritual. It was a spiritual problem, and the only solution was to turn from sin and turn to Christ. That's the same trap we fall into today, is it not? We do the same thing, we just think of the church. And Jesus' response to them is then so important, because he says to them, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. Don't we hate that response? We hate it when we get it from our parents when we're little. We hate it, uh, frankly, when we get it from God because we always think we want to know things that God has not chosen to reveal to us. We're not unique. We're not new that way. The apostles were that way. Just think about the final passage in the Gospel of John. It's an amazing story. Peter is walking with Jesus. And John 20, 21, 20 says, Peter turned He looked behind him, and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's John, right? We know that. And he asks the Lord, Lord, what about this man? What's going to happen to him? I mean, you've laid out my future, and I'm excited about that. What about him? What about him? Jesus gave him the same sort of answer. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Exclamation point. Exclamation point there. You Follow me. Don't worry about what he's doing in the lives of other people. You follow me. It's as if Jesus is constantly having to say to them and to us what the Bible says. The secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to you so that you may obey all that is written in Scripture. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And in terms of the end, Jesus had already taught this lesson in some of, I think, the clearest language in Scripture. Like, you just can't bend and twist this. Matthew 24, 36, he says, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. No one knows. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. He's taught them this already. But we're all 
pretty dense. Like, we will sort of ignore those things too. I mean, I can't say we would be any different. So they still ask. They're still trying to figure out, is this now the time? And the worst part about this is it was distracting them away from the real mission. They were called to follow Jesus, to walk in his way, to proclaim the gospel, to save the lost. But they're focused on trying to figure out these mysteries that God hasn't revealed. And nothing has really changed. We know that. There's an entire cottage industry of mostly false teachers who produce books and they sell videos and they bilk curious people out of their money promising that they have now cracked the code to Bible prophecy. Right? They can, they can look at the news and they can set it right next to Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation. They can tell you, you know, here, here's what this stuff is. But that's not new either. That's been going on for millennia. Sometime around the year 400, Augustine or in the mid-400s, Augustine wrote a huge book called The City of God Against the Pagans. And one of the main reasons he wrote this was to stop the absolute insanity that was taking place among the Christians in Rome. They were convinced that as Rome crumbled and the pagans came in, that was the end. They were God's people. They were Christians. They were the church. That's the end. Christ is coming You had all kinds of weird stuff happening. The message is pretty clear here. If you find yourself with this unhealthy obsession with wondering whether what we see around us is a sure sign of this or that or Christ returning any moment, take a step back. Take a deep breath. Consider what Jesus has to say about this. It's not for you to know. We, We all should pray that Jesus is coming, but it's not for you to know. Don't be distracted by those thoughts. Instead, We know what we're told later in Scripture. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, fulfill your ministry. Jesus told many parables to this effect. Matthew 24 is one of them. Verse 44. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master is set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Just follow Christ. Just walk in his ways. Right? Put very simply, not only do you not know when Jesus will return, it's not a matter that should be of excessive concern for us. We're just called to be ready. We're just called to have that thought that if Jesus returned at this very moment, when I'm speaking this, I'm chasing this agenda, I'm doing this thing, would that be glorifying to God? That's it. Sounds very simple. It's virtually impossible. But when you say it, it sounds simple, right? It's just, we're called to be ready. And to be ready means to pursue righteousness and disciple making and to do all that with great urgency. And that's essentially what Jesus points to in verse 8. And I told you Acts is constantly quoting or making allusions to the Old Testament, and this is an allusion to the servant song of Isaiah. Isaiah 49 says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's what we're called to. So here Jesus lays out for us, right, the gradual geographic progression of the church, starting in Jerusalem, then going to Judea and Samaria, then to the end of the earth, and that's what we begin to see fulfilled in Acts. But most importantly, Jesus is telling them that by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, they will actually be empowered to proclaim the gospel, that they can warn, they can teach, they can call for repentance, they can call for belief, they can point people to Jesus Christ for salvation, for forgiveness, for eternal life. 
It's very easy to get distracted from that mission. It was then, it is today. Many writers observe that the church has always had two very distracting temptations. The first one is when we just become very idle. We just become consumers of worship. We're very comfortable in the walls of our church and with our friends, and we sit back and we feel very, very Christian. And we can be very thankful because Jesus saved us. He saved our family. We have a nice church. We have no real persecution coming at us. That's very fortunate in our country. So we just sit back, wait for Jesus to return. Of course, that results in no real witness at all. We fail in our mission. That results in disobedience. The other temptation, though, if you think about a pendulum, that's on one side. It can swing all the way over to the other side. And that's when we begin to think that we can do God's work in the world's ways. And that is really tough. Because then we start creating our own things. We'll manipulate the so-called hard parts of the Bible. Just, you know, just a little sugar for that. That'll make that medicine go down a little easier. We'll apologize for God. Or we start becoming kind of the opposite end of that spectrum. We become activists. We start hoping to establish the kingdom of God by force or by politics. And history has been absolutely full of both extremes. But the message here from Jesus is clear. You stay grounded in his word when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. The church is going to go out and it will witness the beauty of Christ and his saving gospel to all people. It will be his witness. You will have the boldness to stand and call sin, sin, and ask people to repent from that sin and trust in the only one who can save them for eternal life, to follow Jesus who lived and died and rose again to save anyone who will just submit to him as Lord. If we want revival, if we want moral reform, and I think we do, the answer is quite simple. It's none of the things that we think or we read about. It's we have to pray. We have to be a people who prays. We have to be people who live obedient to Christ, who represent Christ in the world. We have to speak gospel truth. We must do and we must teach, just as Luke had pointed to in the beginning of Acts. One commentator wrote this, the priority for the church until Jesus returns, a mission of which the community must never lose sight, is to witness to Jesus to the end of the earth. The church exists in major part to extend the apostolic witness to Jesus everywhere. In fact, The church does not have a mission. It is to be missional. The church is a mission. And that's the right way to think of it. That brings us to the concluding point this morning, the motivation for mission. In verse 9, it says, And when he had said these things, as they were still looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. There's something different. Jesus has appeared and vanished Many times during this 40-day period, but there was something very different here. The glory of God was present. The glory of God was present. The cloud is not a vehicle to carry Jesus away like a magic carpet. There There are beautiful paintings that sort of make it look that way, like Jesus is riding on a cloud. The cloud is a demonstration of God's heavenly glory. It is referring back, it's reminiscent to the cloud that filled the tabernacle when the Lord was present. 
It's to make us think of the vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 where he writes, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's the glory of God present pointing to the Messiah. But for three of the apostles, this was very different. For Peter, James, and John, it would no doubt remind them of what they had seen on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, when they saw for a brief moment in time the glory of an exalted Jesus Christ. And then we read, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. We'd get that one little command right, we'd probably nail everything. But they were witnessing the glory of God. They were awestruck, standing there, staring up. And verse 10 tells us the angels appeared. While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and, Jesus, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Just think about what Jesus' last words were before he left. It was a commission, right? Go, reach all people with the message that God sent his one and only son into the world to pay the penalty for the sins of all people who will follow him. His last words, commissioning them to go. And the angels then appear, and they have one message. A lot of words here, but one message. Get moving. Pretty simple. Get moving. Why are you standing and staring? He is coming back. And when he does, it will be a triumphant return. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Revelation says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And of course, Jesus says in Revelation 22, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, my judgment with me to repay each one for what he has done. See, every person who is saved by the grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you have to keep reading the next verse in Ephesians, is created new in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10, we should do them. So the reality is we need to get going. You don't have to wait to fulfill your ministry. Whatever that is, it's different for everyone. You don't have to wait to go or be on mission. The reality here is that you are on mission every single waking moment of the day. I mean, I think about it that way, but you are testifying to any person who can see you or hear you exactly who you follow, exactly who you trust, whether you truly know Jesus. They'll see it in your words and your action. Being on mission looks different for everyone, right? It's going to look extremely different for the public school teacher at work than it does for the mother who's at home with her children, It'll look different if you're a volunteer somewhere, you can just walk off, or an employee who needs to honor their employer. And it's gonna look different all the time. We just have to remember that every moment of every day, you are witnessing to the world, and so we have to remember, whatever you do 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Colossians 3.17. Now, it's important to note here. It's not just a call to the church as an entity, as a group, as a structure. And it's important that we need to note that because it's distinctly not that. It's a call to each one of us. And I say it's really important because in a Baptist world, we love committees. So we have lots of committees, and we, that's good. The committees are there. They're a gift from God. They're structures that help us work together and make decisions. But they are ultimately resources to equip the saints for ministry. We are still on mission. I've always loved this saying by an old friend in Kentucky who worked for the Parks Department. He said, in every town and every city, there are no statues to committees. In every town and every city, there are no statues to committees. Now, it's, it's an interesting thing. But it, we can apply that to what God's calling is. Every individual, all of you, me, every individual is gifted by the Spirit in different ways and called in some capacity to be on mission, to serve Christ. And as the angels say, we just need to stop waiting and get moving. Because Jesus calls us to pick up the work that he began, the work that he continues to do through his church, going and making disciples, teaching all to obey the commands of Christ, right? Matthew 28. And that is a big, big, big task. But the Lord, out of love, out of mercy, out of grace, he has provided all the spiritual resources we need to accomplish that task. It's just up to us to use those resources I'm talking about things like the Bible, the church, all of the, to use those resources and the gifts he's given us for the glory of Christ. And I think we can do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are eternally grateful for your word, for your instruction. Lord, we pray that we will take it to heart. That just as the disciples were told, what are you waiting for? Jesus is returning, that we will walk every day with the assurance of Jesus Christ, knowing that he is returning. That we all long to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. So Lord, help us all. Help us uh, identify the gifts, the opportunities you've given us. That you'd grant us boldness to stand for Jesus Christ. That we would stand firmly planted on his word. That we would do that in the face of rejection, the face of persecution, the face of unhappy people. But that we would know that he is pleased. God, we pray that you'll equip each one of us as we go out in the world, starting first and foremost with our families, that we might love them, that we might model for the world what perfect Christian marriages look like. But we need your help for that, God. So we pray that you will bless us in that way that we might be a blessing to the people around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Before we start singing, I wrote this down and then forgot to say it, which I said I would forget.